Oh, thank you, Bob. Good morning, everyone. It's a bit of a disappointment to me that that great wall that we had here last week hasn't been able to stay here because as we come to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 6, what a great opportunity it would have been to have marched around the wall and <laughs> seen that wall come tumbling down. That would have been something else. We could have talked about that for, for years in the life of the church. Matt and I had the opportunity this week to spend a little bit of time in Wangaratta with a gathering of Baptist pastors as the uh, Baptist Union of Victoria gathered us together and sent some of their team uh, representatives to come and share what's happening in the wider church. And we spent quite a bit of time over the couple of days that we were there talking about uh, the future of, of the church, future leadership of the church and particularly around training and mentoring of young people for the future of the church. And of course, as part of that conversation is the manner in which churches need to think about retaining young people because, as you would appreciate, a lot of children grow up in the church, they go through youth group, they hit that age where they go to university or hit the workforce and suddenly church is no longer a priority for them and so they drift away and are no longer part of, uh, of that Christian family. And there was a very surprising statistic that was shared with us and I wanted to share it with you in light of the uh, activity that we participated in last Sunday morning. So I know for some of you that, uh, that as we gathered and did things differently was a little challenging, uh, but here's a very interesting statistic that was shared, uh, born out of quite a bit of research and something worth reflecting on. A child who is known by name by at least five adults in the congregation is far more likely to retain their faith into adulthood than a child who is not known by name by five or more adults. You want to reflect on that for a second. A child who is known by name by five or more adults in the congregation is far more likely to retain their faith, not just stay in the church, but retain their faith into their adult life. How significant is that? And we spend a lot of time thinking about all of the complicated things that we might do or uh, programs that we might like to try and achieve, but there's a really simple thing that can be done in the life of a church like ours to engender a culture where our young people are connected and so continue in their faith. I don't understand what the psychology is behind it, we didn't explore that. I'm not even sure that those who discovered it could explain it. But it's a really significant thing to reflect on and something significant that can be put into action even today. Even today as our children mix with us as part of the service. Last Sunday, as those of you who are here uh, would have experienced, I was delighted to see uh, people engaging with people that they'd not met before. And I know there were some conversations that I had with people afterwards saying, I was with so-and-so, I'd never met them. And that's because I sit over this side of the church and they sit over that side of the church and never the twain shall meet kind of stuff. Uh, what a great opportunity it was too to see people working with children, uh, grandparents with children or parents with other children. And all that mixing up was fantastic. And that emphasises who we are, this family together in Christ. And so if it was a little bit shaky for you last week perhaps in terms of this is not what we normally do, one of the things that we need to do from time to time is question whether our traditions have become so sacrosanct to us 
that we can't go outside that space. It's worth asking that question and recognising that God does all sorts of stuff to bring us together and worship doesn't have to be shaped in the way that we do it each week. It can be done in all sorts of ways. So thank you again for uh, doing that. Let's take a moment to pray before we jump into our new series uh, this morning from the book of Joshua. Let's pray together. God, we do want to thank you for the opportunity to express our love and worship to you as a family and we thank you for the rich diversity that we see in this gathered family of God. And this morning as we uh, continue to worship, we're mindful of that statistic that we've just talked about and the responsibility that we all have to reach out to people of a different generation to encourage and build up one another as we gather as your church. We thank you, Lord, for those who are really good at it and just seem to be able to do it naturally and we ask that you'll help those of us who do find it a bit more of a struggle to go beyond ourselves, to learn a few more names, to reach out in friendship and to ask the question, you know, where is God at work in your life, encouraging and building up and edifying as the Scripture uh, behoves us to do and so Lord we want to thank you for the church and we thank you too now as we come to this fresh study that we're going to take into the life of Joshua that uh, you will be with us that you will open our eyes and our hearts to what you are saying to us we pray in your name Amen. Well as I said we do want to start a whole new series this morning in the life of Joshua it's a a wonderful book but we're not actually going to get to the book this morning. This morning what I want to do is lay a little bit of a foundation for the background of Joshua's life before Matt comes next week and opens the texts of Joshua chapter 1 because there's actually quite a lot of stuff that happened in Joshua's life before he became the leader of Israel and it's well worth having a look at what, uh, what took place there and how that shaped him. Joshua is actually a very unique character in the Old Testament. He's a great example of a person who consistently obeyed God, a person who made mistakes like we all make, but God was able to use those mistakes for His glory. He's a great illustration of Christian discipleship, a guy who walked with the Lord and in addition to that, a great study in Christian leadership. And I want to suggest to you as we come to this uh, series that we're going to do, looking at the book of Joshua is helpful because it affirms a number of valuable principles. Let me just run through um, eight of them with you now, just as a kind of a taste of the sorts of things that we will unpack over these next few weeks. For example, uh, one of the things that we might draw from the book of Joshua is this, this understanding that God has of our human weakness of our fears, of our anxieties and our feelings of inadequacy. We all experience those in various contexts. The book of Joshua helps us understand God's perspective on these things. We see uh, the wonderful uh, blessing of, oops, uh, there we go, God wanting all to be saved and God consistently reaching out into uh, the life of His people and uh, reaching out into fallen humanity. I'll speak about this uh, topic this morning a little bit. God honours true faith but He doesn't expect us to live on blind faith and there's a difference between those two. I'll talk about that a little this morning. 
Here's a challenging one uh, in light of what we've just been talking about. When a home ceases to reflect Christian values, it only takes one generation for spiritual apostasy to take place. Let's translate that into plain English. Every generation needs to be evangelised. You can't assume that the next generation and the generation after that is going to inherit faith. Every generation needs to be evangelised. Further on, when God's uh, God is able to take mistakes and redeem them for His glory. I've touched on that uh, already. We need to consistently set aside time to reflect on God's will for our lives. We see that through this book. And speaking about will, doing the will of God requires an act of the will. It doesn't happen automatically. We have to choose to follow. And there's a great verse in, uh, in the book of Joshua that talks about, as for me and my household, what will we do? We will serve the Lord. It's an active choice that Joshua makes. And here's a challenging one too. God's timetable is often quite different to ours. And if you've ever been in that place where you're saying, you know, what is God doing? Why isn't He acting? When is He going to do this? When is God going to answer my prayer? There's a common question. Just be mindful that God's timetable is often quite different to ours. This book actually makes a great study in how to live a consistent Christian life in challenging spiritual circumstances and as we unpack that, uh, as we unpack this, we'll see that uh, reflected through the book. But let's talk about what there was in the life of Joshua that kind of shaped him uh, for the leadership role that he eventually assumed and start with his childhood because that's always a good place to start, isn't it? And the fact of the matter is, from time to time, I speak and you've possibly spoken to, you may have even experienced people who have had a difficult childhood, whether it's because of abusive relationships or a home environment, whether it's because of extreme poverty or perhaps because of illness. Some people don't have a stellar start to life. And I want to put it to you this morning that as best we can understand, Joshua didn't have the greatest start to life either. There's not much evidence apart from the fact that he grew up in a context where his parents were slaves because Joshua was born to parents, Hebrew parents who were slaves in Egypt. And if you think about it, that would not have been an easy place to be. You know, we think about a young man like Joshua growing up in this beautiful environment where he'd run around and play with his friends. But the Hebrews were enslaved by the Egyptians. And the scripture tells us that they were oppressed. The Egyptians made their lives bitter with harsh labour. And even more critically than that, when the Egyptian pharaoh saw how the Hebrews were growing in number, you know these stories when the pharaoh saw these Egyptian, uh, the Israelites were increasing in number and, and being quite prosperous, he felt threatened, his power was under threat and so he gave orders to kill uh, every male Hebrew baby and the midwives, uh, as you know the story, said, well, these Hebrew women just give birth before we get there and so the pharaoh said, all right, then, then throw them in the river. And we read those stories in Sunday school and in some ways we sanitise them in Sunday school, think if you like, and I don't mean to be disparaging of kids' church in any way, but we often talk about these lovely little stories, but that's a horrible story. This is nothing short of genocide. 
And this is the context that Joshua grew up in. He grew up in a context where, where there was oppression, where his people were subjected to hard labour. And so we can be absolutely certain that Joshua witnessed the suffering of people. We can be certain that he recognised or he saw when his parents came home exhausted, tired after a hard day's work. We can be certain that Joshua would have seen men and women fall from exhaustion as the slave drivers drove them into the ground. And there's every reason to believe that Joshua would have looked at this and assumed that that would have been his lot in life too. Because what else was there to look forward to? Not much, if uh, you're a young man growing up under those circumstances. But there's some other things that Joshua would have seen too. Uh, He would have actually witnessed the activity of Moses as he grew up. He either saw or heard about the nine miracles performed by Moses. He was uh, a, a party too, or he participated in, he witnessed the greatest plague, the death of every firstborn as the angel of death passed over those homes. That's a very formative kind of experience, isn't it? Even more so when you think about it, that Joshua was a firstborn. He was a one of those who would have died unless his parents had faithfully painted the doorposts and the lintel as was instructed by Moses. 1 Chronicles 7.27 tells us Joshua was the son of Nun, the eldest in the family. He would have died if his parents had not obeyed the Lord. And there's a lesson of obedience in that for us too. Joshua was amongst those who fled from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. Something very significant in what happened here. Joshua crossed the Red Sea with the people on dry ground, right? That's an amazing miracle. I can't help but wonder whether some years later when Joshua led the people across the Jordan, as they went across the Jordan, remember, they went across on dry ground, whether Joshua would have thought, gee, there's something familiar about this experience. You know, the faithfulness of God experienced in the past is reflected again in the faithfulness of God in that experience going across uh, the Jordan River. And so there would have been a couple of things that Joshua would have settled in his mind as he observed all of these things going on around him. First of all, very significantly, that God was the true God, that the Lord God was the one true God. You see, when, uh, if we ever have a chance to unpack this, this is really interesting. When Moses challenged Pharaoh's magicians, in fact, let's reframe it, when God challenged the gods of Egypt, every one of those plagues actually took issue with one of the gods of Egypt. You know, God actually challenged them on their own turf, if you like. So every one of those plagues was related to one of the expertises, if you like, of the gods of Egypt and God defeated them and so Joshua who witnessed those things along with the others if they had eyes to see it would have had confirmed for them that the Lord is the supreme God and and Joshua had that driven deeply into his soul and that's important because if anyone and Joshua is an example of this, but if anyone is to assume any kind of leadership role amongst God's people or to do ministry in any shape or form effectively, you need to be convinced of who it is that you believe in, right? It's no good being on shaky ground when it comes to who you believe in when you start mixing it with the world. 
And God knew that was the case for Joshua and God knows that's the case for us as well. It's, it's important to be convinced about who it is that we serve. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, Joshua would have come to realise very early on that Moses was God's appointed leader and so Joshua served him very willingly and very faithfully as deputy. And that says something about Joshua's character too. In Numbers 11.28, we're told very early on that Joshua had been an attendant to Moses from his youth. And so there was a willingness on Joshua's part to serve as a loyal deputy on the part of, a, a part of Joshua. And we assume that Moses mentored him in that role. Now, it would be fun to go off on a sidetrack here and talk about the importance of mentoring in the life of the church. If I had time, uh, probably could but I'm not going to. But you know where I would go, right? If you are not being prepared for leadership, you ought to be helping others be prepared for leadership. There it is in a nutshell. If you're not being mentored by someone else, and we all should be probably, then we should be mentoring others or maybe doing both anyway. And Joshua experienced the blessing of working under a leader, but Joshua was also a blessing in so much as he served that leader faithfully and he served that leader well. There's a sermon I'd love to preach to you, but I'm not going to be able to do this one. There's a passage in the New Testament that talks about how to serve your leaders. You know, I've never actually heard a pe person preach on the topic how to be a good follower. You know, we often talk about how to be a leader, how to do this, how to do... How do you be a good follower? The life of Joshua is a great example of how to be a good follower because this guy served where God called him faithfully. And I'll come back to that a little bit later on in the morning. Joshua was, of course, with the people as they made their way from Egypt towards the Promised Land. And I want to turn to Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16 for a few moments, which recounts a military campaign that took place. Uh, it's a, a campaign that took place where Moses deputised Joshua to uh, be the leader in the battle against the Amalekites a campaign that was successfully concluded. Let's read through this passage and then make some comments about it. This is from uh, Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, if Joshua had been less of the man than he was, he would have said, so why do you get to stand up there on the hill while I'm down here where the fighting's going on, you know? Typical politician or whatever. We will come back to this. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands the Amalekites are winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner, 
He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now that might be another one of those well-known stories from kids' church. You know, there's some great drama, isn't there, in that story? Moses standing, sitting on the stone with his hands raised, the days going on, his hands are getting... Have you ever tried to hold your hands up for an extended period of time? The question that comes to my mind is why, if you have? I mean, what's the purpose of doing that? But even, I know myself, if I've... Painting, for instance, when we moved into the house, painting the, the uh, what do you call that, cornice, you know, the cornice of a whole house, that's hundreds of metres. By the time I've finished, goodness me, I could barely lift my arms above my shoulders. It's a great story, but there's a verse in there, a phrase in there that I want to focus on this morning, something we might skip over normally. Uh, it's where the Lord said to Moses in verse 14, write this on a scroll or something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Make sure that Joshua hears it. Why did God instruct Moses to do that? Why such a clear instruction? I mean, after all, Joshua had been there all day. He'd kind of seen what happens. He would remember what happens or what had happened. Why this instruction? Well, a simple answer might be that God wanted Joshua to learn that God had honoured the obedience of his leaders. After all, Joshua wasn't up there on the mountain with Moses and Aaron and Ur. But I think there's more to it. And I think there's something here for us. I think the reason that was written was because it's important to frame history with the perspective of God's activity in that space. You see, what was happening was that uh, an event had taken place, something amazing had happened and God said to Moses, write this down, make sure that Joshua hears it because I want Joshua to understand I was active in this space. This didn't happen simply because he was a good general serving in the army. This happened because God was at work. History was framed from the perspective of God's activity. Do you understand that? God wanted Joshua to understand that history uh, represented his activity, God's activity. And not just an activity of Joshua's own initiative. And likewise, for the sake of our faith, we need to ask the same question. It's no accident this morning, because Matt and I talked before the service, that he asked you to talk to someone else and say, you know, where has God been active in your week? What are you thankful to God for for this week? It's healthy to do that sort of activity, not just on a Sunday morning, but at any time, because it helps reframe history to say, well, okay, where has God been at work? And that builds faith. It does two things, actually. One is, it says, you know, if I've got things I'm joyful about, if my week's been a great week and I've enjoyed it, I look back and I see where God's at work, I can give thanks for that and know that the things that I enjoy come from God. And if I look back at my week, having spent a fair bit of it with the staff from the BUV, and I say, well, it was, you know, it was heavy going or, or worse, you know, whatever your week might have been, mine wasn't too bad, I should just put that caveat out there, just in case someone from the BUV happens to watch the DVD afterwards. Um, you know, let's be serious. If you've had one of those weeks from hell, so to speak, 
And let's be truthful, this happens, you know, people wrestle with illness or grief or loss. How important is it to reframe uh, that history in terms of God's activity so that you can go on in faith? Because even in the midst of that mess of life, the difficulties and, and pain and loss, God's at work, you know, where is God through this time when I experienced the loss of a loved one? Was he there? Was he absent? No, of course he was there. I can see it through the way people ministered to me. I can see it through the peace of whatever it might be. And God knows for the sake of our faith, it's important to reframe that history so that we don't take credit for the things that we think, gosh, I was good. You know, Joshua could have come out of that battle and said, well, Moses, how did I go today? You know, I thumped those Amalekites. Did you like the strategy that I used? Did you see the pincer movement that I used? How good an army operator am I? And we could all fall into that trap, can't we? Thinking that everything that happens, happens because of our good fortune or our smart thinking or whatever it might be. And likewise, when things go to custard, uh, uh, there's uh, the opportunity, unless we rephrase it, to think, oh my goodness, there's no hope. There's no future. There's no way ahead. Reframing history in terms of God's activity, thinking about what God has done, helps us grow in faith. And then uh, continue uh, to lead, to serve, to do whatever, uh, not just existing on blind faith. Let's talk about blind faith for just a second. What is blind faith? Let me give you an, an, an illustration. Let's just imagine, this, this may or may not work, uh, let's just imagine uh, you're out in your backyard one day and you look over the neighbour's fence, your neighbour is just a little bit wacky, all right? Good guy, just a little bit left field. And you look over the neighbour's fence to say hi to Ralph. Have we got any Ralphs here, by the way? Fantastic. You say hi, hi to Ralph. Hey, Ralph, what are you up to? And you see Ralph is busy in his backyard because uh, Ralph, he's left field. Uh, he's got a chair in the middle of the backyard and strapped to the chair, he's got 200 rocket motors. All right. And you say, Ralph, what are you doing? And Ralph says, hey, I went down to, uh, where would you buy a drone? Bunnings. No, I'm not going to take because you work for Bunnings and we don't advertise like that here. This is church, Richard. Okay. I was going to buy a drone online... Because I want to take, this is Ralph, I want to take some photos of the neighbourhood, but they were going to charge me 200 bucks. So he said, oh, I got to thinking I could do something myself. So I'm going to get this chair. I've got these rocket motors strapped to the chair. I'm going to sit in the chair. I'm going to light them up. By my calculations, this chair should be able to get me at least 100 metres up into the air. I'll be able to take all the photos that I want. I've got a parachute strapped on my back. As soon as I'm up there, I'll release the parachute, drift back to earth. All will go well. Would you like to have first go? <laughs> well, would you? Why not? Let's just say uh, you probably wouldn't because to do that would be exercising blind faith, wouldn't it? Faith that rests on no evidence. But let's just say uh, your friend Ralph next door sat on his chair, lit the rockets, up he went, took his photos, came down to earth, it worked really well, you wow, uh, let's have another look at that. Ralph did it three times, would you still uh, be prepared to have a go or not prepared to have a go? 
It's a little bit shakier still, right? Blind faith is faith that's based on no evidence. And here's the point. God didn't expect Joshua to operate on blind faith. Joshua didn't expect... uh, Sorry, God didn't expect Joshua to just walk uh, ahead without knowing who he was walking with, if you want to phrase it like that. You see, faith is always in something or someone. How many of you sat on that chair this morning without checking that the chair was okay to sit on? Pretty well everybody. You exercised faith in the chair. No, why do you do that? Well, because you've sat on that chair in the past, that chair held you up in the past. Uh, You've done it a hundred times, perhaps. Faith is like that. It's based on experiences from the past and God here in this book is undergirding Joshua's faith with the evidence of his activity so that Joshua could continue to serve and go beyond what he might have done before. There's lots more we could say but let me just make three observations this morning uh, from this early life of Joshua. The first one I've touched on it relates to the manner in which Joshua served as Moses' deputy. There's a little saying that I remember being taught as a young person. Actually, I'll tell you the truth, uh, my parents told this to my younger brother and I overheard it and I thought I might just remember that for future reference. It goes like this, you will have heard it probably, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. It was a message to say it's hard actually to be an understudy sometimes. It's hard to be a deputy working with someone else. It's hard to be number two in the orchestra or whatever it might be. And yet Joshua played this role with a whole lot of grace and wisdom and tact and in some respects expertise. In fact, in some ways it would appear from the relationship between Joshua and Moses, that Joshua said, you know what, I'm going to be the very best at what God's called me to be right now. And this is what God's called me to be right now. And so it doesn't matter whether I'm going to be promoted in this uh, this, uh, leadership or whether there's anything else ahead, Uh, I'm just going to do the very best in the place that God's called me today. And there's some important lessons in that. I have been unable to find anywhere in the Scripture where Joshua inappropriately coveted Moses' role and God honoured that. And there's, there are some lessons because uh, I think oftentimes we serve in roles and we view them as stepping stones to other roles. This is very, very common in the workplace, isn't it? Uh, you think about... Careers. I was chatting to somebody just recently talking about pastoral ministry. It's not a career, it's a calling. But oftentimes we go into a career where uh, we think, okay, if I, if I get to this place, then I'll be able to get to that place and I'll be able to get to this place. We're always looking at what's ahead, what else might be coming for us. There's much to be said for contentment and much to be said for investing where God calls you wherever that might be, whatever that service might look like, without thinking, without allowing our thinking to be fogged up or clouded by what's next, you know, what's next, where am I going to go next? 
And the second point is this, in relation to that reflection, Joshua trusted the timing uh, of God in his life. You see, I find myself, I'm often impatient. You know, when's God going to act? When's God going to answer this prayer? When's God going to do that? When's God going to do this? How long does it take before I'm going to be given this responsibility? When's God going to open this door? When am I going to be able to be this person? Paul actually made a very interesting comment to Timothy in the New Testament. He said, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, which I think is Paul saying to Timothy, just let people mature a little bit before you lumber them with responsibility. Or if I put it another way, let people grow before you promote them. Let them mature. Let them gain some experience. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Discern what the Spirit's saying before you pop them into a role. There's much to be said uh, from this, uh, the story of Joshua for being content and acknowledging that God's timing is quite different to ours. And the third, as we see uh, from Numbers 14.5 onwards, Joshua expressed his faith boldly this faith which had been undergirded by his experience. Joshua was one of the spies who went into the land, you know. He was one of those guys that went in and explored the land, came back with a report of uh, all sorts of wonderful, abundant blessings. And he was one of only two who said, you know what, we could do this. I can't help but wonder whether the reason Joshua said we can do this even in the face of significant opposition is because of what's happened in the past and the way that God had reframed history for him in the past. You see, God's activity in the past has been obvious. We've seen God at work in the past. So Joshua said, let's go and see it again. And Caleb was with him, but the rest of the spies said, no way, have you seen those guys? And when I was teaching years ago, uh, I taught a prep one too for a little while kind of finished me off, let me say. <laughs> Those first few days, it wasn't the kids that were the problem, it was the parents. <laughs> one little boy came, one little boy came in, his name was Levi, he came into the classroom, first day at school, preps, he was only this tall, he came in and he looked and then he burst into tears and he ran outside and said, mummy, mummy, my teacher's a giant. <laughs> And that's, that's exactly, those 10 spies, they'd gone and they'd seen the Nephilim, they said, look at the size of these dudes, we've got no hope. And Joshua said, you know what, we could do this. And why? I reckon it's because of his history of the past. He's seen God's work in the past, he's recognised that he's allowed his faith to be built because of that and so he's ready to go for it. Unfortunately, the others were not. And the rest of Israel was corrupted by their negativity. I reckon Joshua spoke boldly because he knew where his faith rested, not in the Israelite army, but in God. This is a great lesson and I tell you what, I have to be honest, it's one that I fail regularly. You know, there's opportunities to step forward boldly in faith all the time. And I messed it up this week, let me just tell you um, how. We, uh, as I was saying, we were in Wangaratta for a couple of days. I was just about to come home. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to nick in and, and just get a haircut. Low profile look. I go faster on the bike. It's fantastic. And so I parked the car and I saw, you know, those barber poles, the blue and red and white sort of spinning. I thought, 
terrific. There's a barber. Straight in there, it was lunchtime, nobody much about. There's a, a lady in there who was a hairdresser. She was halfway through her wrap. She just chucked it on the bench and she said, have a seat, we'll go for it. What would you like? I said, I want this, you know, simple, low profile. Keep it simple. Give me a discount because it'll take you two minutes. And, <laughs> and we got talking. And uh, she said, oh, where are you from? I said, oh, I'm heading back home to Wodonga. I've still got a few things to do. Oh, really? Oh, we're going to go in Wodonga. I'll be up there with my son, you know. We, um, he's nine. We're going to some fun joint. I don't know where it was. Um, somehow the conversation got on to relationship stuff. You know, she's got a new partner and, and she must have noticed the wedding ring. She said, oh, you're married. How long have you been married? And so with some pride, I might confess, I said, 30 years last month. And I was half expecting her to say, well, that could explain why you're as grey as you are. But she didn't say that. She asked me a really, really good question. And, and I've been kicking myself ever since. She said, so what's the secret? You know, reading between the lines, I suspect she'd been in and out of relationships. She's got a new one right now. Here I am sitting there, 30 years married. What's the secret? And so I kind of bumbled around with things like, well, you've got to make sure you marry the right person to start with and uh, it's about forgiveness. We talked a little bit about that and not taking offence and all the rest of it. And as I left and I thought to myself, boy, oh boy, you know, God's opened up a door there for me to say, well, actually, you know, the thing that I think is probably most significant is my faith because it shapes how I relate to my wife. It shapes how I relate to other people. Um, I'm not going to say that we wouldn't be married if we were not Christians, uh, every chance that we would be. But it makes such a difference. And here was this door that she opened for me and I kind of went to it and then went away from it. You understand what I'm saying? You know, there's opportunities like that to express our faith every week somewhere uh, but here's an observation. Uh, we shouldn't beat ourselves up over missed opportunities um, and don't if you do. Uh, you're not alone. God's so gracious, you know. He would have been saying, okay, we're just going to have to have a crack at that from another direction another day. But here's an observation uh, I think is really valuable and uh, picks up from this story of uh, Joshua. Faith that's not exercised Fades. You know, if you don't work your muscles, they gradually disappear. I rather like this little saying too. You build muscles in your soul by exercising your faith. You build muscles in your soul by exercising your faith. Joshua exercised faith. It was grounded in God's activity in the past and we see that as a result of that, God was then willing to trust him with the leadership of his people. And Joshua took those people into the wonderful blessings that God had for them. We'll see that as we unpack this book over the next few weeks. We're going to pause there though and pray this morning and look forward to continuing to unpack this great story over the next few weeks. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we want to thank you that you do work in all sorts of circumstances there are times where we can give you thanks because we see your hand at work in the things that fill us with joy and, uh, and make us happy and bring us to a great place of life. Uh, 
we, we see your activity there, but we also see your activity in those dark places, in the times where things are not so good. Your word actually tells us that you walk with us in the valley of the shadow of death. You're right there beside us. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to consistently frame history in the light of your activity so that no matter what circumstances we might face, whether good or bad, we will be mindful that you go before us, that you lead us, that you are there with us. Help us, Lord, put to death pride where we think we are the ones who orchestrate our own good fortune. Help us too to turn away from hopelessness and despair when we think there is no way of making sense of the difficulties that we face because in both circumstances, Lord, you are there and you are working and you are the one deserving glory. Lord, we've been mindful too of the challenge that we all face in exercising our faith. And that little story that I've just told is probably representative of experiences we've all had, not just once, but many times, where, Lord, we've, uh, we've realised afterwards uh, there was an opportunity that perhaps we've missed. We're grateful to you, Lord, that you're a forgiving God and that you again and again and again come back to us and teach us and grow us. Uh, but we would pray that you'll help us to exercise our faith and so build muscles in our souls in the way that Joshua exercised his faith and grew to be a mighty man of God. We thank you for this example that you've given to us to learn from, in some senses to follow and to grow in. Lord Jesus, it's you today who we would seek to give glory in all of our activity, in our reflections, in our lives. And so I offer this prayer to you now. Amen.